Welcome to another in our series of coronavirus episodes of Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 6, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. In this episode, we hear again from contributing editor W. Wade Gibbs. As part of a National Press Foundation fellowship he's doing, Gibbs spoke on July 30th with Arthur Kaplan, head of the New York University School of Medicine's Division of Medical Ethics, about some of the ethical issues that researchers have to consider in testing experimental vaccines against COVID-19. Questions like, does participating in a vaccine trial mean you cannot receive an experimental medicine for COVID if you do get sick? And would it be ethical to test the vaccine in prisons where inmates face very high risks of coronavirus infection? Gibbs and Kaplan also discussed ethical questions we'll face when a vaccine eventually is approved for use, such as whether there's a moral argument for strong-arming a drug company into releasing its vaccine technology into the public domain. Also in this episode, we'll hear a sponsored segment from AstraZeneca, and we also have a short report from Scott Hirschberger on how our wacky brains think about round numbers versus specific numbers when considering how good a disease treatment may be. But first, back to Arthur Kaplan. He's the editor of the 2017 book Vaccination Ethics and Policy. He has served as an unpaid advisor to vaccine manufacturers on research ethics and allocation issues. But he says he does not accept paid consulting work from drug companies or activist groups. Here's Arthur Kaplan with Wait Gibbs. The U.S. government's Operation Warp Speed is ambitiously trying to create, test, and license a vaccine for COVID-19 in less than a year compared to the five to ten years typically needed for a new vaccine. The program is borrowing strategies from a crash effort undertaken in the 1950s against polio. Arthur Kaplan was seven years old when that paralytic disease, which had been terrifying parents nationwide, came to his town. I was one of the last people in America to get polio in the Boston outbreak of 1957. That's where I'm from. Uh, I saw kids in iron lungs, saw a lot of kids die on the floor. It's one of the reasons I got interested in medical ethics. The polio vaccines developed in the 50s have saved millions of lives and brought us tantalizingly close to eradicating the disease altogether. But in the haste to produce them, researchers and manufacturers occasionally made mistakes and crossed ethical boundaries. The experimental vaccines were tested on intellectually disabled children, for example, as well as on millions of people in the Belgian Congo and the Soviet Union who were not given the option for informed consent that today we consider indispensable. Medical ethics have come a long way in the past 65 years. The World Health Organization has already set up a working group on ethics in COVID-19, of which Kaplan is a member. They have started thinking through many of the tough questions ahead as companies race to test experimental vaccines and, we hope, eventually ramp up manufacturing of those that succeed to billions of doses worldwide. These questions include, how can we make sure vaccine trials don't exploit people or enroll too few participants from black, native, and Latino communities who are disproportionately sickened and killed by this disease? Who will get approved vaccines first and who will pay for them? And what, if anything, should we do about vaccines being sold on the black market? The most immediate questions involve large-scale clinical trials. Those trials will take months to produce results, Kaplan says. One reason is, if I give you the experimental vaccine, then I have to wait for the uh, virus in nature to uh, infect me 
to see whether I'm going to do better than a group that didn't get the vaccine. Usually you have a placebo control group where you don't give them an active agent and you sort of monitor one against the other. Um, if you're waiting for natural infectivity with COVID, we have a problem because the uh, degree to which they're becoming infected is very slow. So you'll notice that people are starting to recruit subjects for trials right now in hotspots. They may be looking at Brazil. They may be looking at uh, Atlanta. They could be looking in a region of the country that has uh, a big outbreak. But at the same time, morally, we have to try and tell people who sign up for uh, vaccination studies that they should not get themselves infected. So it's a sort of moral catch-22. You can't really encourage people to be reckless and get themselves infected. And the other problem is you're probably not going to take sicker people because it makes it difficult to assess whether the vaccine is causing an adverse event or an underlying illness is causing an event. Most of the people who come into these big vaccine trials are healthy volunteers still. They're younger. There is an effort underway uh, in the NIH-sponsored trials to try and get uh, more diversity by ethnicity and race. But a lack of transparency in who is being selected for the vaccine trials has raised concerns that historically underrepresented communities may once again be overlooked. Kaplan says that the preference for healthy volunteers is also one of the reasons that vaccine testers probably won't turn to one otherwise logical place to recruit participants, prisons, where coronavirus has been running rampant. You can't use a vulnerable population because you're worried that they can't consent. They're going to try and say, I'll do it because they want to get out of jail or get parole. But the other main reason, Wade, is prison populations usually have two or three underlying diseases. I know on TV, everybody's at the gym and looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But in fact, hepatitis, HIV, drug abuse, there's a bunch of reasons why they're not the best subjects for, for any beginning studies. While dozens of vaccine trials are ramping up over the coming months, drug makers will also be recruiting volunteers to test novel medicines to treat people already infected with SARS-CoV-2. We know that no vaccine against COVID-19 will be perfect. The measles vaccine is more than 90% effective, but flu vaccines are just 40 to 60% effective in a good year, according to Walter Orenstein, who directs Emory University's Center for Influenza Research and Surveillance. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has signaled that it would approve a COVID-19 vaccine that is as little as 50% effective. So it seems inevitable that some of the people who receive experimental coronavirus vaccines will still get sick with COVID-19, and their doctors may want to give them experimental medicines to treat their disease, but doing that could mess up the results of both the vaccine trial and the drug trial. So is there an ethical conflict here? Yeah, there is. Uh, when you're on a vaccine trial, if there were an agent that rolled out, say, into a new phase three of a antiviral drug, anti-COVID viral drug, you would not be eligible to take that. Absolutely not. And I, that has to be in the informed consent. The phase three trials of the vaccines will include tens of thousands of volunteers, yet they will largely exclude whole categories of people at the highest risk from coronavirus. Kaplan and other experts have emphasized that safety studies must continue even after the FDA approves a vaccine for distribution. Now you're just taking it out to the general population. Probably for the first time, pregnant women are going to be exposed. Probably for the first time, you're going to be exposing people in the uh, elderly and nursing home populations. 
you may be exposing people who are now carrying two or three underlying chronic illnesses. You may uh, see a variety, in other words, of sicker uh, people who weren't in the phase three trial. You're going to have to pay attention to this. Even FDA approval is not the green light to say we've got a vaccine and everything's over. FDA approval will trigger release of the vaccine to parts of the public, however. And then the question will be, who gets it first? Kaplan expects that supplies will be limited for quite some time, especially if the vaccine requires two doses to be effective, as many vaccines do. If you're looking at uh, duration, I mentioned some of these things require two shots to get enough response. But what if it only lasts six months? Are we going to then go back and vaccinate, let's just talk in the U.S., 330 million people, two shots is 660 million doses. You have to do it twice a year where you've just gone over a billion doses for the U.S. Making and distributing a billion of anything takes a long time. We should be talking more about how to organize the rollout of an eventual vaccine in ways that are both smart and fair. We need a national commission made up, I think, of a broad spectrum of interest groups. People represent teachers, nursing home patients, minority people. You know, you can make up the stakeholder list and give them the authority to prepare the public to get ready for some hard decisions and then explain why, and to be transparent. I think everything they do should be in the open. Beyond supply constraints, the question of who will get the vaccine is tied up with the question of who will pay for it and how much will it cost. So some vaccines are going to be have their price set by a private company that has the intellectual property. They can charge what they want. Now, I'm sure they're going to be under a lot of moral pressure to not charge exorbitant prices, but... If you had to give two shots every six months, we're talking a lot of money. Um, But let's say your factories to make uh, these uh, vaccines are located outside the U.S., which many times they are. So Belgium has been a big place for vaccine manufacturing. And the idea is, uh, let's say, uh, Merck contracts to make vaccine in Belgium. And if it works and FDA approves it, then we expect the Belgians to stand there as the boats get filled with vaccine to ship to us while they don't get any. Maybe. We'll see. Um, China, India, Vietnam make vaccines, um, Russia, but they may not meet FDA manufacturing standards for safety. So who should get it first when there isn't yet enough to go around? Well, one sensible thing is to take first people who are most at risk and protect lives. And that seems to me morally Reasonable. We all know that healthcare workers, many have died because of exposure in dangerous environments with blood and intubation and dialysis, um, and also nursing home personnel. So they'll probably reasonably be first in line. First responders, ambulance, police, fire who handle patients and bring them in. Uh, nursing home residents are high risk, but then we get to some other interesting categories. Our friends in prison. Uh, will the pop, will the American people say, yes, yes, you're right. Before we vaccinate my children, why don't you go down and vaccinate prisoners? I think the answer to that should be yes, but that's politically going to be interesting. Similarly, for a variety of reasons, poor neighborhoods, poor people, minority people, Native Americans, African Americans, Hispanics have been harder hit. By this vaccine, we should be going there if we're trying to figure out 
how to prevent deaths in the at-risk group. But again, it's a political question. Other politically tough choices may come up around black markets and whether to prioritize vaccination of older people, regardless of how well the vaccine works for them. We don't want to waste scarce vaccine on, say, the very old. If they just don't build an immune response, there's no point. Will there be a black market? There will absolutely be a black market. Every vaccine I know of has a black market. It's usually not very big. It usually doesn't even get punished. Um, even back to uh, poor countries, there are definitely people, uh, leaders and rich people diverting vaccine to them. But in the U.S., we've seen it too, what we're going to do about it, punish it. I haven't sort of heard much pl- planning. And then there are people who are going to say, I don't want it. Okay, that's not going to be a problem initially. But are we then going to say, if you don't, then you're going to have to mandate mask wearing or more testing and more quarantine if you're positive? Is there a price if you won't vaccinate? The World Health Organization has called on countries to make a vaccine affordable and accessible to all equally. That is what, in my view, constitutes naivete in, in extremis. The battle will be to countries that make vaccines or say they own them, Germany, Belgium, the U.S., China, vaccinate their own people and go way beyond the people who are at need to cover everybody before they then say, now we'll start to distribute elsewhere. An us-first policy is clearly not the way to save the most lives. But Kaplan argues that as long as we prioritize people at greatest need before those at low risk, some degree of nationalism could be ethical. I happen to think that it is not morally wrong to favor your neighbor, your friend, your wife, your county, your country first. What I mean, I'll qualify and say this. I'd want to get the people at greatest need in my country first and then look to see what I could do about people at need in other places. Putting your own nation first is easier to justify if you publish the recipe and technology for the vaccine openly for other companies in other countries to make it in parallel. That's what happened with Jonas Salk's polio vaccine. No one company could possibly produce enough of a COVID-19 vaccine to supply the whole world in a timely way. So is there an argument for a government buying out the intellectual property rights and putting the know-how into the public domain? I'm going to say yes. I think that's a good question. And I think sharing the IP uh, in the middle of a plague is not usual business, and they should uh, try to do it. Now, maybe they're going to demand a price for that and so on. But the point of you can make this too, yes. I, I think that's going to be one hopeful solution to that distribution problem, just churning it out of factories in one country and shipping it and getting it out, that's very hard. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Wade Gibbs. Now a segment sponsored by AstraZeneca. Between 80 and 85% of cancer care patients will receive care in their local community or regional hospital. Most will not have access to a major cancer research hospital such as Dana-Farber or Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so cancer care in the community setting becomes very vital and critical. And they need to be able to have the same types of outcomes and treatment opportunities that any patient, whether they go to an MSK or large center, or, you know, up the road to their local community hospital within, you know, a few miles of their home. 
That's Leah Fine. She was the recipient of the Catalyst for Care Award for her organization's Centers of Excellence program at the 2019 Cancer Community Awards sponsored by AstraZeneca. The Catalyst for Care Award celebrates those making a patient's experience as easy as possible during an extraordinarily difficult time. The C2 Awards are part of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer program, which brings together the community that is working to drive meaningful change in cancer care. As we head into this year's awards, Scientific American Custom Media, in partnership with the award, is taking a look back to visit with last year's winners and hear what they've been up to since we first met them. So, Leah, since you all won the award last year, what's happened with the Centers of Excellence program? So the Centers of Excellence program has grown to more than 40 sites across the country. Additionally, when we became go-to foundation for lung cancer last year, we've also brought on board the Screening Centers of Excellence program. And this is a large network across the United States of both community as well as academic centers that focus on high-quality lung cancer screening. So we're looking not just at cancer care across the full spectrum within the original Centers of Excellence program, but we've now expanded our mission to also more directly include focusing on screening centers of excellence and those that are upfront or upstream, identifying those patients from the at-risk population who should be screened and may benefit from finding their cancer early. The other thing, of course, that's happened since May of 2019 is COVID. And so, of course, we're helping those sites respond to the needs of cancer care in the midst of a pandemic. The hospitals you work with see about 20,000 lung cancer patients a year. So what tools have you seen emerging that your colleagues are employing to make sure the patients get the care they need? Obviously, telemedicine is playing a huge role. A lot of our doctors and physicians are using telemedicine for shared decision-making, for meeting with patients in a palliative care setting, for having a lot of those consultations, especially for people who may be a little bit more fearful, high anxiety, or too frail to want to come in for their care. And certainly the go-to foundation for lung cancer has been very active in providing webinars and bringing some of those key opinion leaders on telehealth together so that a lot of the nurses and physicians within our programs can really learn and benefit from some of those leaders and pioneers in this space. For those patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer or any other cancer, we're seeing a lot of implementation around you know, how do we think about therapy and infusions and how are we making it safe for people to come in? We're seeing a lot of studies around different dosing regimens, the frequency in which a patient needs to come in, you know, can that be changed? To talk about the award, last year you received the Catalyst for Care Award. Tell us about that experience. Did anything stand out to you? Did you make any particular connections as part of winning the award? It was just an honor to be a part of all of the amazing nominees and winners within each of the different categories. So it was very inspiring to see how much work is being done across the cancer care community. And yes, I ended up reaching out to one of the other winners over the course of the past year who made great progress in stepping up the screening rates for colon cancer. So that was a great connection to be made and something that I will certainly continue to pursue as this program moves forward. Why is it important to celebrate the cancer community in this way? What does the award do, do you think? I think it's important to celebrate them because in many cases, they're really fighting the toughest battles alongside with patients or they are patients. And often they choose something where they find an unmet need. And it sort of takes a rare person to identify a problem and really own it and say, you know what, I'm going to go after a solution. I'm going to make this better. And so I think it's really important to recognize those people because they are the unsung heroes. And so many people benefit 
from the changes that those pioneers have made. And so I think it helps to inspire them. It helps to inspire others to come forward with their ideas and their inspiration and the ways that they can, you know, impact the cancer care community. This podcast was made possible through the support of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program. Leah Fine is the Senior Director of the Excellence in Screening and Care Program at the GoTo Foundation for Lung Cancer. Most summers, Scientific American hosts a science graduate student or recent graduate who's on the Mass Media Science and Engineering Fellowships from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The fellowship has been around for more than 40 years, and many familiar science journalists are alumni, including me. This summer, Scientific American was fortunate to have two fellows, Karen Kwan, who you'll hear on an upcoming 60-second science podcast, and Scott Hirschberger. Here's a report from Scott about how we sometimes fool ourselves when assessing numbers. Imagine that a new treatment for COVID-19 has become available. To convince patients to pursue the treatment, should doctors emphasize its high success rate or its low failure rate? And should they use round numbers or precise numbers? Decades of research have shown that more people would pursue a treatment said to have an 80% success rate than the same treatment said to have a 20% failure rate, even though the two descriptions are equivalent. The phenomenon is called attribute framing. Now, my research question was, if I just change the numbers, instead of using round numbers such as 80% and 20%, if I use specific numbers such as 81.76% or 18.24% or any other specific numbers, will that change the impact and influence of attribute framing on human decision making? And uh, what we found in our research is that it really does. Gaurav Jen, an assistant professor of marketing at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Jen and his colleagues asked hundreds of people to evaluate a hypothetical cancer treatment. The results surprised him. If you tell somebody that there's a particular treatment that is almost 80% successful, and you tell somebody that there's a particular treatment that is 81.26% successful, you use the specific numbers in your communication, it is likely that going with the round numbers will be more useful to persuade people about the success of that particular treatment. That's right, the average person is more convinced by almost 80% than by an exact number clearly more than 80%. The study is in the journal Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes. Jen says that precise, non-round numbers draw our attention and require more time to process. Once something catches your attention, you need to make sense of it. So we try to compare that specific number with the ideal situation. In the case of a treatment for cancer or COVID-19, the ideal would be a 100% chance of success. A non-round number, like 81.26%, falls short of that ideal. So it appears to be viewed negatively compared with a familiar round number like 80%, despite being better. Going back to the first example of touting a treatment as having 80% success versus 20% failure, Jen found that success rates, both round and non-round, were viewed more positively than the equivalent failure rates. And a failure rate of 20% was viewed more positively than a better but non-round failure rate, like 18.74%. The counterintuitive finding is useful for anyone who uses numbers to communicate, from marketers to public health officials. And it provides yet another example of the weirdness of the human mind. 
That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.